If you are 99% sure, you are 100% unsure. If you are 99% sure, you are 100% unsure. Some of you may have heard that phrase used in church growing up. I heard it a lot in church. I grew up, I think the first Sunday I was born, I was in a Southern Baptist church, and that's where I grew up. And I would hear this phrase a lot from pastors. I would hear this phrase a lot from uh, evangelists who would come to revival meetings, even heard it at youth events. And once I got to Bible college, I heard it in our Bible college chapel a time or two. If you are 99% sure, you are 100% unsure. And it often was associated with illustrations like this. Imagine leaving your house today and wondering if you left your stove on. Well, if you're 99% sure, you are 100% unsure. If you left today and, and you left, you met, you're wondering if maybe you left your dog pen open. That happened a lot in Tennessee, the dog and hunting dogs. If you left the, if you left the gate open at your house, if you are 99% sure you did that, then you are 100% unsure. And you need to be sure. And so often, this was an evangelistic plea to get folks to make sure they were Christians. And often it was a very genuine plea. If you're here today and you don't know if you're going to heaven, we need to make sure that you're sure that you're going to heaven. If you're here today and you haven't believed in Jesus, or you're wondering if you believe in Jesus, let's make sure to get that right today. Let's do business with God today. Before you leave here tonight, you need to get saved. Because if you're 99% sure, you are 100% unsure. It just kind of rings in my ear as a child, as a teenager, and even as an adult, because I misapplied the motive behind that phrase so much in my life. In times of sin and doubt, struggle, going through very difficult times in life where it's hard to trust God, where you're wondering, do I really, really believe these things? Why is it so hard to trust God? Why is it so hard to believe these things? Am I really following after Christ? And that phrase in my mind, if I'm 99% sure, I'm 100% unsure, just kind of haunted me. And still, even today, as I think about those times in my life, those times of struggle, I remember as a teenager lying awake at night, wondering if I was a Christian and repeating the sinner's prayer over and over and over and over and over again until I fell asleep. God, I admit I'm a sinner. I believe Jesus died for my sins. Would you please come into my heart and save me? God, I admit I'm a sinner. I believe Jesus died for my sins. Would you please come into my heart and save me? As a teenager, I fell asleep saying that so often. 
Because I was less than 99% sure so often in my life. And a lot of times today, guess what? I'm less than 99% sure. Does that mean I'm 100% unsure and should doubt? You see, the reality is we can experience great confidence in the truth of the gospel. And for the believer here today, I want to be very clear with you. Because of the truth of the gospel, you can experience security in the gospel. It is the gospel that makes you sure of your faith. But to have faith in faith is miserable. It is faith in Jesus that gives us confidence. And maybe you're here today and you are struggling with assurance. Do I really believe these things? Am I really a Christian? Am I going to heaven? You're struggling with sin. You're struggling with doubt. And you would say, yeah, I'm less than 99% sure of these things. Maybe you're sick. And you're wondering, how in the world do I believe these things? This sounds like pie in the sky, just religion to try to give us good vibes. And you're trying to work up those feelings because you've looked around today and you've seen people who really believe these things. They're raising their hands. They're crying. They're shouting out. They love it. And you're saying, I'm not there. I'm not sure I can embrace these things like that. How do you have security in the gospel? Well, as we have moved with Jesus to this point in the gospel of Mark, we begin to see him get closer to the cross. And one of the things we begin to see with the disciples is they have really inconsistent faith. Jesus on purpose is exposing their doubt. And it is a roller coaster ride with the disciples. They go from believing these things to absolutely forgetting these things. They go from confessing Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, to even denying that that's even possible or true. As we move to the end of the gospel, we are on a roller coaster ride with the disciples' faith. And Jesus isn't turning to them going, hey guys, I really believe in you. Have faith in yourself. Come on, buck up guys, let's, let's go. No, he's turning around to them and constantly rebuking them and saying, what is wrong with you? What, what, after all you've seen, after all I've done. And the problem with the disciples is they don't understand right before them is the, as we just sung, the founder, the anchor, the finisher of their faith. They still are searching for faith in faith. What are we to believe in? What are we to trust in? And Jesus all along is saying, right here, me, not you or anybody else, not your background, not your history, not your religion, me, trust in me, have faith in me. And so last week we saw he takes three of the disciples up on a mountain and he exposes his glory before them. He unveils his authority and power as he stands with Moses and Elijah. And God is saying to Peter, James and John, this is my final glory revealed in Jesus Christ. 
the Son of God who you have confessed, and this glory will be displayed on a cross, and this glory will be displayed in your suffering for this glory. You will declare it's valuable by giving your life over to this glory, and this is the only glory that will sustain you. Believe in Him. Listen to Him. Look to Him. And then as we move from the mountaintop experience at Camp Transfiguration, we come down to the Valley of Doubt. Notice verse 14. And when they came to the disciples, these are the other nine disciples who are at the bottom of the hill, we might say, after a six-day journey, Jesus Peter, James, and John return to them. They've been alone for a week. And when they're walking up, they see a great crowd around them. And, they, and the scribes, the religious leaders who hold very tightly to their interpretation of Scripture, and they have a lot of problems with Jesus because he is saying all the Scriptures are fulfilled in me. And they're saying, no, that's not true. Jesus and the three from the mountain walk down and they see a crowd. And what they see before them looks like a middle school fight. And when you came outside of the gym and everybody's gathered around and you're like, what in the world is going on? And you, you move your way to the middle of it to see who's fighting that day. Well, here it's the disciples and the scribes. And they seem to be in a yelling match, an argument, a theological debate back and forth. But notice verse 15. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him... They were greatly amazed. You know, these guys are going back and forth arguing. And all of a sudden, Jesus makes his way through the crowd and everybody goes, oh, here he is. He's going to settle the debate. No need to argue anymore. He's here. And notice the phrase immediately. It's abrupt. It's jarring. Everybody's silent. Everybody looks to him to figure it out. And they run up to him and they are greeting him. They're frustrated with the scribes. They're disappointed with the disciples. And they're looking to Jesus. And he asked them, what are you debating? What are you arguing about? And the disciples at that point are embarrassed. They say nothing. Because they're in trouble. What's going on here? And someone from the crowd answered them out of nowhere, pushing people aside. Teacher, I brought my son. Now, notice this phrase. I brought my son to you. I was looking for you all along. For he has a spirit that makes him mute. Because of a demon possession, he cannot speak because he cannot hear. And when it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. The scene is like someone with epilepsy, struggling with seizures. And yet this man says this is a demon that does this to him because when the demon, the phrase says, seizes him, captures him, overcomes his body. What this force does is it slams him to the ground and literally mauls him and tries to kill him and tries to destroy him. Imagine the panic in the father's voice as he sees Jesus. Imagine the desperation. My son has been attacked and destroyed by a demon his whole life. Look at the bruises on his body. Imagine this child concussed over and over in this trauma. 
And when I was looking for you, I found your disciples. So notice the text continues. So I asked your disciples to cast it out. Luke tells us he begged the disciples to cast. I don't, we don't know where Jesus is. Okay, would you please cast this demon out? We've had enough. We can't take any more of this. Begged him. But they were not able. Verse 19. And Jesus said, no big deal. I'll handle it. No. Jesus answered them. Oh, faithless generation. How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. In some sense, Jesus has discussed it with the same. And he says, oh, faithless generation. Oh, faithless people. He comes down from fellowship. Fellowship with Moses and Elijah. To being exasperated with the disciples and scribes. And the curse of sin that he sees in this boy. And his response is, you guys are faithless. How much longer will I have to endure your unbelief? Your lack of, un, your, your lack of trust. It's just like Moses when he returns from Mount Sinai. What does he do? He comes down and he sees the people worshiping a golden calf. It's infuriating when you've seen the glory of God displayed in all of its fullness. When, when Jesus has been declared to his disciples to be God's ultimate glory. And he comes down and he sees, he's smacked in the face with unbelief. And his response is, bring him to me. And he looks at the disciples and says, really? You're in this tift with the scribes. And at the center of all of it is this traumatized little boy. You guys are pathetic. You guys, this this is wrong. This is a mess. And it's because you lack faith. Notice verse 20, and they brought the boy to him. And notice when the spirit, the demon inside of him, saw him, Jesus. Notice again this word, immediately. This is Mark's word, immediately. It's abrupt, it's jarring. Immediately, when it saw Jesus, it convulsed. Begins to... It begins to tighten up and shake the boy again. It's a horrific scene. And he falls on the ground and he's rolling around, foaming at his mouth. Here, the demon is brought into the presence of the Savior. And he's terrified. This is like a child who's in trouble. Laying on the ground and rolling around. And you see that in this boy's body. This demon wants no part of Jesus. Now, one of the things that we see in ministry of Christ is that this spiritual activity is constant. And we almost see that when Jesus' presence is in the world, it unmasks in a way that probably hasn't happened in human history since the demonic forces. And it's because even the demons know who Jesus is. And it scares them to death. They understand that he is the Holy One of Israel who has come to destroy them. And this demon is fearful. And Jesus asked the Father, how long has this been happening to him? Now, 
This isn't just small talk. Jesus so often wants to look into the face of sin, death, and pain, and he wants to fill it. Jesus didn't have to ask that question. Jesus knows the answer to that question. But, but he opens himself up to the pain of this man. He wants to hear the pain. Because he desires to be a partner in his pain. We see the compassion of Jesus to open himself up to this. And notice the man says from childhood, his whole life. And it has often tried to cast him into fire and into water. You see, there would have been open fires everywhere. As we've read through Mark, seas, rivers, wells all over the place. And it's almost any time we're out and we're close to a fire, this demon grabs him and tries to throw him in the fire and kill him. Anytime we, we are going to, to the sea or to the river or to the well to get water, anytime we get close to the water, the demon tries to grab him and throw him in and kill him. Jesus, this unclean spirit is trying to kill my son, trying to destroy him. And it's happened his whole life. This is what we have suffered with. Jesus opens himself up to this pain. Notice. He looks at Jesus and says, if you can do anything. Now, it's very important. He says, if you can. He's not saying, will you? Mark wants to emphasize there's a tinge of doubt here. After all I've been through, Jesus, it's really hard to believe that anybody can do anything for my son. So if you can, please do it. Notice, please have compassion or pity on this story, on our lives, on my son. Please be moved with kindness to aid us. The word help us is to run to someone's aid that calls out. Jesus, we are calling out for you. We have been searching for you. We have been looking for you. We have heard stories about you. We have run up on your disciples and they can do nothing. But maybe, just maybe, if you can, can you please help us? And notice Jesus' response here. Even after opening himself up with compassion, he says, if you can. Jesus is probably still a little frustrated with the unbelief that he sees before him. And and he rebukes this man. If I can, I thought you came to me because you knew of my power and authority. I thought you'd seen it and you'd heard about it. You, If I can, this is a rebuke to this man's faith. It doesn't sound like someone who truly believes. And then Jesus explains, all things are possible for the one who believes. Now, this is one of the most misinterpreted, taken out of context, misused verses in all of human history. How's that for superlatives? What Jesus is saying is you don't sound like somebody who truly believes in me. Because for the one who believes in me. They know I can do all things. He's not calling them to have faith in his faith. Meaning if you really believe anything's possible for you. Anything's possible for you if you would just believe. No, he's saying the one who truly believes in me knows anything is possible for me. That's the point of the story. And so he rebukes him. And immediately 
notice, this is important. This is why I've been pointing it out. Immediately after this stinging rebuke, after this explanation of what it would mean to have faith in Jesus, immediately the man changes. There is an abrupt change to him at this point. He goes, oh, I get it. And all of the faith that it has taken him to track Jesus down, he remembers it, he gets it, his confidence is there again. Yes, this is why I've been looking for you. Because I believe you can do anything. And you just reminded me, you can do anything. And he says, yes, I believe. That's what this encounter is all about. This is why, this is why I'm here, Jesus. Yes, I believe. Immediately, he believes. But then says immediately, help my unbelief. Notice the change. He has gone from, Jesus, please run to the help of my son. Please aid us to please aid my unbelief. If it means trusting you can do all things, I'm going to cling to any sort of confidence within me that that's true. But I'm going to admit to you, there's still a lot of things keeping me from believing that's true. Do you see the tension? And this is what true faith looks like. I believe. I believe. I believe. So run and help me in all my unbelief. I believe just a little, maybe. Come help me believe more because you're the only one who can help my unbelief. You're the only one that can heal my son. You're the only one that can aid my unbelief. Notice the issue now is his belief. And then Jesus, when he saw the crowd running together, okay, there's a commotion. There's about to be something big happening. The crowd gathers around him. Jesus is done with the crowds at this point. He's tired of the fame. Doesn't want to be seen as a snake oil salesman or some magician. And so, real quickly, I don't want to cause any commotion. He's headed to the cross. Notice, he rebuked the unclean spirit. He asserts authority over it, saying, you mute and deaf spirit. Notice, it is the spirit who he is silencing. It is the spirit who who he is deafening with his command, come out of him and never enter him again. This boy's whole life, he suffered with this. And in a moment, immediately, immediately, it's all over. The demon is gone, never to return again. Verse 26, and after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it's literally translated, giving him terrible convulsions. This is his final vicious protest inside the boy. It comes out and the scene is so violent and terrible. People are standing around and they are thinking this spirit killed him. Out of fear and terror of Jesus, the spirit has killed the boy. Notice they're saying he's dead. But then Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. What a beautiful picture. Cast out the demon, cast out all the bad things and raises him up from the dead. And Luke tells us, handed him to his father. What a beautiful picture of the gospel. The power, compassion of Jesus. And then the disciples say, we need to have a debrief session. So they get back to the house and they ask him in private, 
They don't want the scribes, Pharisees to hear that they're that they failed. They said to him, you know, why were we not able to cast it out? And he said, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Now, Jesus isn't teaching us that we can cast demons out just by praying. We don't we don't have the authority to do that. The apostles did. And he gave them the authority to do that as a sign to the kingdom. And and what he is rebuking here is their lack of faith. I'm the one that gave you the authority to cast out the demons. And what we have seen is you are trying not in my authority, but your own power and your own wisdom and and your own authority to do this. And it doesn't work that way. And, And he says, you're going to have to trust me, which is why he brings up prayer. This only happens by trusting me to do it in my power and my time. And I may or may not use you to do it, but you're going to have to trust me. He's rebuking their faith here again. They were trying to do this in and of themselves. We're going to have two applications to this text. The main application is Jesus rebukes useless faith, but runs to aid unbelief. Notice how the passage moved from miracle to faith. Notice how the passage moved from physical to the heart. And what we begin to understand is that the disciples had botched this up because they were trusting in themselves. They were trying to do this work and to do this ministry by their own power. And here Jesus rebukes it. I'm the one that gave you authority. You can't do this by your own power. You're going to have to trust me. Remember in chapter 6, they were given authority over unclean spirits. And it was to be a prequel to Pentecost where the Spirit comes down and there are signs and wonders performed through the apostles. But as he comes down the mountain, what does he say to them? You're not trusting in my power. You are faithless. You, You don't believe in my power You are faithless. And in Matthew, he tells them they have little faith, which is pathetic faith, which is faith in yourself. And that does nothing. And he tells them in Matthew, if you just had a a mustard seed of faith, which is the tiniest seed in me, you got a lot of faith in you. Where's that getting you? If you had just a tiny bit of faith in me, that's how this works. Not great faith in you, but great faith in me. And for us here today, God has given us authority to witness the kingdom, to declare Jesus as Lord no matter what. And the essence of that ministry is supernatural. What God has called you to do as a Christian, to witness the gospel, to live out the gospel, to be a Christian in this world, cannot be done in your flesh. The boldness and the courage and the power to declare the gospel in the face of opposition, in the face of unbelief, in the face of brokenness only happens by the power of the Spirit. That's the essence of what Jesus has called us to. That's what he called the disciples to. And he says these things only happen supernaturally if I do them. 
And our ministry only happens supernaturally as Jesus accompanies us. In Acts 1-8, it is the power of the Spirit that gives us boldness to declare the gospel. When someone believes the gospel, it is a miracle of heart change. And it only happens supernaturally by the gospel. These things only happen by the power of God. And to try to do these things by our own power, we're going to be failures. It's going to make us miserable. The reality is ministry must be an experience in our life where we look back and say, that only happened because God did it. But how many podcasts, how many leadership manuals, how many church growth routines tell us this is all about us? You can package this gospel in some slick branding and secular imaging of Jesus and you can draw a crowd. And be void of the Spirit. And nothing happened by the power of Christ. If anything's good's going to happen, if, if, if anything's going to happen for the glory of God, it's going to be supernatural. And I'm not talking about parting of the Red Seas. I'm not talking about million dollar donations, which we will receive. I'm not talking about amazing movements of God where we stand back and say, oh, there's revival across our land. We, we want all that, by the way. I'm talking about in your individual life. There's got to be those times where where you understand. I would have never, ever, ever shared the gospel with that person if it weren't for God moving. I would have never been bold enough to tell them about Jesus. But you know what? I prayed. I prayed that God would give me the desire. I prayed that God would give me the boldness. I prayed that God would give me the opportunity. And he answered and you look back and you say, God had to do that. He did it. That's how you live in the supernatural. And that's how you minister in the supernatural is through prayer. I have friends, you know, and you would say they would have never came to Christ unless God moved. But I prayed for them by name with my BFG and I trusted God enough to love on them and and to minister to them. And the person who who I never believed would believe the gospel as a Christian. Now, God had to do that. How often do you see that in your life? Well, I wonder if you're living by small, pathetic, useless, self-centered faith, trying to do it in and of yourself. Or even just a mustard seed of faith that God would move. Where are you living, parents? One of the reasons you're so miserable with your kids is because you are trying to change their behavior with your fleshly power. And nothing's going on and you're miserable and you're tired and you lack joy even in sharing the gospel with them. When's the last time you just got on your face before God? And you said, God, if anything's going to happen, you're going to have to do it. And I want to trust you. I believe, but help my unbelief. And I'm going to rely on you and your spirit, those friends that you have that you're going back and forth arguing about all these different things. And you really want them to understand the gospel and believe the gospel. Are you working by your power or God's power? When's the last time you prayed for them? When's the last time you got on your face and said, this this demon only comes out by prayer? When's the last time that happened in your life? Here, Jesus rebukes lack of faith on mission, but then he runs to unbelief. Notice 
The father here turns in trust in Jesus, but there is doubt. His doubt is rebuked, but then it's rewarded. His kid had been beaten by this force his whole life. The father is full of anxiety that just multiplies in his life. And this man comes to Jesus with every reason not to believe. I mean, put yourself in his situation. Parenting is hard. But imagine having a child possessed by a demon. Now, some of you say, I do. You don't. I don't think you do. But imagine if that real terror and power that is overwhelming your kid. He has every reason not to believe. And maybe you're here today and that is you. You have every reason not to believe. Like the disciples here. Disciples that you know have messed it all up for you. Other Christians have ruined your perception of Christianity. And you've seen it your whole life. Your parents, your friends, people you're around. And you say, there's no way I can believe this. No way I want to believe this. And by the way, we get mad at the world for calling us hypocrites and saying we are the reason they don't believe. Just stop getting mad about it. Because it's a real issue in their life. And you just look at them and say, you know what? We are all hypocrites. And my hypocrisy makes it a struggle for me to believe sometimes. So I get it. And maybe that's you here today. You, you, you You have every reason not to believe because of other Christians in your life. Maybe you're here today and you say, I want to believe. I believe this stuff to an extent, but I still live in the real world. And there are bills on my kitchen table that COVID still exists. There's political unrest all over the world. I want to believe that something good is coming, but I have every reason not to believe. And maybe you're here today and you want to believe in forgiveness and grace and joy of the gospel, but you say, I'm really messed up. I've really made some mistakes and I don't know if that forgiveness can even reach me. I want to believe But I have every reason because of my own sin not to believe. Heaven sounds great, but I keep attending funerals of all my friends. I'm at an age where it's like I'm at a funeral every week. Somebody I grew up with. I want to believe in heaven, but I have every reason not to believe. Well, here in this story... Jesus gives us a picture of a gospel that gives us every reason to believe. You see, the gospel is the love of a father who did not rescue his son from the curse. God did not rescue his son. Jesus was destroyed by the fire. The fire of God's wrath for your sin. Jesus was plunged under and suffocated under The water of God's wrath for your sin. God didn't rescue him from those things. He chose them willingly. The son embraced them. He was allowed to be mauled and writhing in pain as sin and Satan had their way with him until he was finally beaten down by all that opposed God, left for dead on the cross. And men and angels stood around and said, he's dead. Put him in the ground. It's over. It's over. 
He's dead. He lost. He's defeated. The demons had their way. And then three days later, the Spirit took him by the hand and raised him up. And promises when you believe in Him, He will hand you to the Father. That's the gospel. And you may have every reason not to believe in your own mind, and your own heart today, but the gospel gives you every reason to believe. And the gospel is found in God's word, which gives us reason after reason after reason after reason to believe. Don't be scared of your doubt, but don't be lazy in coming to the gospel for aid. Don't be scared of your doubts, but you better be running to the gospel for aid in your doubt. I believe, so I'm going to open my Bible today because I believe it. And I'm going to put my face in this book. And I'm going to pray the Spirit of God who penned every word would help my unbelief. And point me to the gospel again. And here's the point. The gospel is not dependent on your perfect faith, but a perfect Savior. The one who struggles to believe in Jesus. Hear me, hear me, hear me. Please hear me. The one who struggles to believe in Jesus is saved by the same gospel as the one who has great, amazing faith in Jesus. You struggle? You got great faith? Oh, it's the same gospel that saves you. And it's faith in that gospel that saves you, not faith in faith. It's the same cross where Jesus died for your sin. It's the same righteousness where Jesus lived a perfect life. It's the same promise of a resurrection that He'll raise you up that saves your sin from your sin. And on days you have a strong faith when you say, I'm 100 today. I'm living in the joy of the gospel. I have my quiet time, Bible coffee. I Instagrammed it. It's just great. Jesus, 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 joy. I got it dripping today. It's the same gospel that saves you and that you look to on the day when you're less than 99%. And you are struggling and you are hanging by a thread and you are ashamed of the things that you're saying, ashamed of the things that you're doing, and things from 20 years ago begin to flood your mind and flood your heart, and you say, I ain't even at 99% today. I'm in single digit percent today. Oh, it's the same gospel with that 5% faith that saves you on the day you have 100% faith. It's the same gospel. It's not perfect faith. It's a perfect Savior on days where the resurrection is distant. On days where every day feels like Easter. Easter Sunday, every... It's the same gospel. It's not your faith that waxes and wanes and you struggle with doubt and you struggle with insecurity. And on days where you, you struggle with unbelief, unbelief, it is not the intensity of your faith that saves you. It is the intensity of your Savior who longs to save you and gave His life for you. It is Jesus that saves you. It's not the perfection or power of your faith. It is the perfection or power and power of the Savior. You see, faith is not measured in percentages. It's measured by a person who's done it all.
And you trust He has done it all. Faith in faith is miserable. And if you're here today trying to have faith in your faith, you're going to keep being miserable. Because some days you get it, some days you don't. Seasons of life, you seem to get it. Seasons of life, you don't. Oh, place your faith in Jesus, who is the one who is great, the one who is perfect and died for you. See, it's 100%. I guarantee you this. You're going to have doubts this side of heaven. You just are. We have sinful hearts. But Jesus promises for the one who believes. The one who believes he can do anything and has done everything and will do everything he promised. There is a day coming where you will know that you know that you know. On the day when Jesus casts out every demon of doubt and raises you up and gives you to the Father. On that day, you're going to know this. You will be 100% sure, 100% sure that He's the one that holds you fast. Even on the days when you were less than 99% sure.